Well, today is a monumentous day because today is our final sermon in Exodus. This is a series that we've begun at the beginning of the year. We started walking through the book of Exodus way back in January. Um, and it's been a really fun, a really, really fun ride. If, if you're anything like me, the first 20 chapters of the book of Exodus are really exciting. Uh, there we have the narrative of God uh, grabbing Israel and rescuing them from slavery um, in the first half of the book of Exodus. Um, and then in the second half of the book of Exodus, if you're anything like me, it's a bit of a slog, okay? It's, it's, it's a little rough. You have the law, you have all these requirements about the tabernacle. What is that all about? And I think it's usually about the point in our Bible reading plan in February, March, we hit the book of Exodus, the back half, and we're like, I give up, you know, like, this is a slog, you know. That's okay if that's you, that's okay if that's you, no worries. I hope that our sermons over the past couple months in these back 20 chapters um, have opened them up for you and, and shown you the life that's in them, and today we're going to close it all down in chapter 40. Um, and we've had um, a lot of people that have started tracking with Sedaris over these past few months. I want to extend an extra warm welcome to you. Thanks for being here with you. So I'm just going to catch everybody back up to speed uh, with where we're at so we can all just, we can put the, the conclusion on it together, okay? So I'm going to catch everybody up to speed. And what, what we've said about the book of Exodus is that the book of Exodus is all about God making this distinct, special people for himself, for his own distinct and special purposes in the world. That's really what Exodus is all about. And he's moving the people out of Egypt, the Israelites, so that he can move them into this special purpose, which we've said is moving them into a public worship of him, so that they can worship him publicly at the center stage plot of land called the promised land. So that's God's goal. He, need, he really wants his people to be worshiping him, worshiping him publicly in the center of the known world. And so what he's done is he has to move them out of Egypt to move them into that. And so God uses his, uh, Moses as an intermediary to get the Israelites on board with this plan. God essentially says to Moses, hey, go tell the Israelites I'm able and willing to rescue you. Are you game? They, of course, say, yeah, this oppression is awful. And, and so uh, God brings them out of Egypt with the famous 10 plagues, with the 10 plagues. And the final plague is, is the most terrible of all of them, um, where God uh, judges all of the firstborn of Egypt. But the Israelites are spared this judgment because they uh, listen to God's instruction on how they might participate in uh, this atoning sacrifice of a lamb that they put over their doorpost so that that judgment doesn't visit their firstborn. But in this kind of, this, this tenth plague, what we learn is that God, when he shows up, none are righteous before him. All are guilty before him. And, and so up in, in this point of the narrative, what we see is that God's redemption of his people, it's actually worked the same way for thousands and thousands of years, that, that, that none are righteous before God, all are guilty in his sight, and, and what they have to do in order to escape his judgment is lean into an atonement that he provides for them, to listen to his word and trust that atonement that he provides for them. And so if you really want to learn what it means to have a, a relationship with God, Exodus it's a great place to go. We've said it's kind of a microcosm of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow God. And, and they march out of Egypt after this 10th plague, and, and they're guided by this cloud. And, and this cloud is primarily important for our purposes today. We're going to see it again in our text. 
Um, and it turns out to be the way that God chooses to visibly manifest himself in the midst of these tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people that have come out of Egypt. That's how he chose this invisible God, chose to physically manifest himself. And inside this cloud houses something called his glory, which we've talked about, which is like the, the, his, his true and beautiful and pure essence of his being, is, is God's glory that resides in this cloud, that dwells in, in the cloud. And what we see in the back half of Exodus is that this cloud, it guides them, it directs them. They, they literally just look at this cloud, and wherever the cloud goes, they follow it. Uh, so it guides them and directs them. It brings them to the Red Sea, which we also see another function of this cloud, which is it can protect them. Because at that point in time, Pharaoh sends his chariots after them to kill them. Cloud moves in between Pharaoh and the Israelites to protect them. So it, it protects them. Um, and then thirdly, what we see, especially in the back half, is that this cloud communicates. God communicates with the Israelites through this cloud. So he's communicating with them. We see this primarily on top of the mountain of Mount Sinai where the cloud comes down and God's glory comes down onto the mountain and speaks with Israel and then Moses to, to provide him the instructions for the tabernacle and the law. So this is the, the cloud that God, he, he guides, he directs, he protects, and he communicates with his people through this cloud. So keep that in, in your mind. We're going to get back to it later today. And at Sinai, what God did is he outlines this new social order for this distinct people. And he didn't just do that. He also outlined for them exactly the, the, the things they were to do to provide for him a space to dwell called the tabernacle. Um, in fact, you could argue that, that these last 20 chapters, if you want to put a label on the last 20 chapters in the book of Exodus, is they're really all about how the Hebrews are to ready themselves and ready the tabernacle for God to be in their midst. That, that's what they're all about as they go forward towards the promised land. That's what these last 20 chapters are about. Now, it doesn't mean that they were perfect. No, we, we, we've seen the, the hiccups that they engaged. They, they reigned from not trusting that God would provide for them to full-on creating a gold calf and worshiping it instead of, of God. But what we find in these hiccups is that this God is, is slow to anger He's abounding in love. There's, there's so much love that God has for this special, distinct people that he's created that he's not going to leave them. He's not going to forsake them. That he's going he's gonna to lean into forgiveness and, and patience and, and perseverance and, and, and long-suffering with these people to get them where they need to go. So we really learn that this God is more glorious than we had ever thought at the beginning of the book of Exodus, as they even run into their minor rebellions of him. And it strengthens our faith today that need to, for us to see, you know, even in light of our rebellions, God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He will walk with us. He will not forsake us, but he will go with us forever. And the Israelites eventually come together, and they, they, they obey, they listen, they, they, they say, we're going to lean into this covenant that, that Moses created on top of the mountain, and, and we're going to lean into building this tabernacle. They generously give to see this tabernacle created, to create a space where God's word, this, this cloud, is, we're going to see it dwell so his word can, can be communicated to his people. They can know what to do. He will be with them. He will protect them. He will guide them. They give generously towards that end. <clears throat> And so what we've seen is that God didn't move these Israelites out of slavery just so they'd be free, just for freedom's sake. He's, he's moved them out because he wanted to move them into that public worship of him so that, that all nations who look in on this, this community, this nation, 
could come to conclusions about who God is and what he's liked and what he's like. He, he delivers them from a tyrant and he puts them under a gentle, sacrificial, humble king. That, 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 that's himself. And, and so we've talked about how this, this very detailed picture of, of Exodus is very similar to the picture of a Christian life today. Uh, God moves us out of bondage and oppression uh, to sin and moves us into a public worship of him to, to move us into seeing him as our king who's slow to anger. We, we've talked about all of this. And, and as we consider him and we worship him more, we come to be motivated by his love and by his vision to make him known in the world. So that, that's really what we've been relating Exodus to, to us over these past, uh, these past seven months. And so as we wrap up Exodus today, everybody's caught up to speed. If, if this is your first week, you're, you're right there with us. If you've been coming the whole time, it's probably a really good reminder, you know. Um, as we wrap up Exodus today, it's not all, the surprise, all that surprising that we encounter heaven. We encounter heaven in chapter 40. It's the final chapter in Exodus, and it's the end that the Christian life looks towards, isn't it? Heaven. And Exodus chapter 40 is going to allude to the dynamics of, of heaven that um, are really going to set the, the tone for the way the rest of Scripture is going to understand heaven and earth and how the two interrelate. And this is very crucial because everybody actually operates from their understanding on how heaven and earth relate with one another. And in particular of kind of um, as they look into the future, which one is going to be predominant is what I'll say. Uh, One conviction is that after this life, there's only heaven. There's only heaven after this life, that after we leave this earth, we, we go to this place called heaven in a disembodied state, and there's other disembodied creatures there. Some of them have wings, some of them are fat babies, some of them obviously play harps, okay? That is the end state for, for Christians. And in fact, most religions have this vision of the afterlife, that, that the earth is something that will not persist into the future. The earth is something that's to be escaped. We need to get away from it to get to heaven one day. Now, if you have uh, not yet Christian family members, friends, co-workers, this is probably what they think you believe. It's not necessarily what you might, in fact, believe, but this is probably what they think you believe, that, that, that there's a struggle that you conceive of between heaven and, and earth, and the goal of the struggle is to get out of earth and get to heaven. That's probably what they think you believe. And, and to be fair, uh, Many Christians conceive of this struggle between heaven and earth being resolved in this way. You know, there's this, this predominant narrative in Christianity that goes like this, um, that when Jesus comes back again, what he's going to do is, is he's going to suck all the Christians up before he makes things really terrible down here in something called the rapture, and he's going to fly in on his X-wing, he's going to drop the torpedoes exactly where they need to go, and it's going to blow up the earth, and everybody just flies away to heaven together, you know? That's like a very real thing that Christians have well, that many Christians believe, you know? They say it's a, a biblical argument. It's not really that biblical of an argument. It's not that compelling of a vision of the afterlife either. Okay, so, so that's, that's one conviction, that there's only heaven into the future. The other conviction is there's only earth. There's only earth. This is all we have. There's no heaven, and so this life is all we got right now. Right now, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's a Bible verse, by the way. I didn't... that there's only earth. There's only earth. And and so this life really becomes all about wringing out all of the excitement that we can get out of it, all of the pleasure we can get out of it, satisfying all the urges that we have. If there's only earth now and forevermore, 
all you have are 75 years, that brief window to get all you can get. So you might as well do it. Or uh, if you, you might have a more of a conservationist view and say, you know what, the generation after me has a 75 window, and so I'll kind of uh, take a step back from some of the things that I want so that they can have some of the things that they want to, kind of this conservationist view that, hey, there's only, there's only earth here. We, we need to make sure there's enough for everybody kind of thing. Now, now the, the third conviction on, on heaven and earth is that they both continue into the future. And they both continue... Um, in a very particular way. It's captured uh, throughout the scriptures and made very clear the final pages of scriptures and the book of Revelation, and that is that heaven comes to earth. Heaven comes down to earth. And, and that is what our passage is all about today. You know, th- th- this understanding of heaven coming down to earth really sees the whole scriptural narrative as starting like this. Originally, heaven was on earth. God walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve, but their rebellion, because of their rebellion, he had to leave, and he's left. And now throughout the scriptures, what we see is God breaking back into uh, the earth in, in this way and in that way, and in, 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 in a really cool way, in the person of Jesus. And then God promises for heaven to return in full when Jesus returns, like he said he would. And, and so we actually talked about this a lot a couple years ago, if you were tracking with us in our, our sermon series on the book of Colossians. Colossians is all about how heaven is coming to earth now in our lives and will fully come into earth in the future. But what's great about heaven coming to earth is that it really says two things. One, that there's beauty here on earth. That there are things that, that are, are good and that are true and that are, are beautiful that, that don't need to be burned up in the fire. They just need a little bit of Jesus' resurrection power to, to be surged into them so that they, they might be more good, more true, and even more perfectly beautiful. This earth isn't to be thrown away is what this, this vision says. That's what it says. And and, and then the the second thing that this vision acknowledges is that there's still sin here on earth. There's still sin here on earth and brokenness, and that if we were left to our own devices, we would continue to to hurt, malign, ostracize one another, and we would continue in our downward spiral. So the second thing says we still need heaven to come to earth. It's um, it's, It's a very reasonable and honest evaluation of what life is like here on earth now. We need it to come to redeem us, to fix brokenness, and make that which is beautiful even more beautiful. And and Exodus 40 highlights it all for us, like I've said. Um, God's going to move people out of Egypt in order to move them into the worship of him. But in Exodus chapter 40, we see what that actually looks like, and we get a wrinkle here at the end. It's a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit like Fight Club, all right? It's a little bit like uh, the sixth sense, you know? There's a little bit of a wrinkle here at the end that's, that's really exciting to, to look at that is all about really making clear that heaven is actually coming to earth. Because here we discover that God moved the Israelites out of Egypt so that he could move in with them. The Israelites had a roommate, and it was Pharaoh, and God says, nope, that's not your roommate anymore. I'm your roommate now. It's this great, like, clarifying plot twist that, that actually makes the, opens up the rest of the scriptures to us. Exodus chapter 40 is God's move-in day to the people of Israel. It's heaven coming back to earth. He, he'd moved them out of their old apartment so that he could move into a new apartment with them. 
It's his sweet move-in day. And so this is how God works. He moves us out of the bondage and slavery of sin so that we, he can move us into the worship of him. And when we get on board with that plan and open ourselves up to how he might want to use us here in this earth, on this earth, for his purpose of his self-revelation in the world, he comes down and he moves in with us. That's what it's all about. So that's enough uh, by way of introduction. Let's open it up to Exodus chapter 40 and look at this move-in day as it comes. I'm going to be preaching uh, from the CSB today. Uh, Dave preached from it last week, so I thought I'd give it a shot, you know. Um, So 40 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, you are to set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month. The first day of the month. So, So God prescribes a single day for Moses to set up this tabernacle. And it's quite a a statement because we actually have just read a lot about the tabernacle in these last 20 chapters. You know, if if you read through them in chapters 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, this is all God telling Moses how to make the tabernacle. Okay, and then when we move forward to chapters 36, 37, 38, 39, it's all about Moses working with the people to actually do those words that God told him and make all of those arrangements very specific. And so here in chapter 40, everything has been made and all the pieces are kind of sitting around. In chapter 40, God says, bring it all together now. It's time to bring it all together. And it seems like they could have built it in one day. And so he tells Moses, set up the pillars and the curtains, uh, move in all the furniture, uh, anoint all of the furniture with oil, wash, dress, and anoint the priests. So God outlines the moving day in the first half of 40, and then this is what Moses does. Look at it in verse 16. Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. The tabernacle was set up in the first month of the year on the first day of the month. So this is about... Uh, just under a year of when they came out of Egypt. So it says earlier, earlier in Exodus that they came out the 10th day of the first month. So this is almost a year. Moses got a lot done in a year. Man, compare your most productive year to this, and my gosh. Okay, he got a lot done in a year. This is great. Okay, um, so one year. The tabernacle was set up in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month. Moses set up the tabernacle. He laid its bases, positioned its supports, inserted its crossbars, and set up its pillars. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses took the testimony, placed it in the ark. Those are the the stones that he he inscribed the, the Ten Commandments on. And attached the poles to the ark. He set the mercy seat on top of the ark. That's the lid. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and put up the curtain for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony just as the Lord had commanded him. Moses placed a table in the tent of the meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain. He arranged the bread on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table and on the south side of the the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. Moses installed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded him. He put up the screen at the entrance of the tabernacle. He placed the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered the burnt offering and grain offering on it, just as the Lord had commanded him. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. Moses, Aaron, and his sons washed their hands and feet from it. They washed whenever they came to the tent of meeting and approached the altar, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Next, Moses set up the surrounding courtyard for the tabernacle and the altar and hung a screen for the gate of the courtyard. So Moses finished the work. So God is essentially that slacker roommate that doesn't move in his own stuff. Okay? 
I did this once uh, with my wife. We, we were moving from our, our small first apartment, we moved to our, our new town home, and I conveniently had to work. So I asked all my friends to move in my stuff. It was great. You know, I just showed up, sat on the couch, watched TV when I got home. It was perfect. So Moses works hard with the Israelites too to, to pull it all together in a single day. They pull together the tabernacle. All the different pieces they bring together and, and they pull it together. And then God comes which is to say that that heaven came to earth. Verse 34, the cloud, we we talked about that cloud, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day. There was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. So now, with the rest of our time today, I really want to spend in these last five verses, how does God's glory come down? What does it tell us about who he is? And, and, and what does it mean for us today as we partner with him to bring heaven to earth? I hope I convinced you earlier that heaven coming to earth is a great thing, and it's really the thing that God has asked us to participate with him in. So how might we do that? Well, well first we have to see what this tells us about God. Um, there's something really awesome here that is really hard to see because um, if your translation is anything like mine, it puts in this heading between verses 33 and 34. Mine says the Lord's glory. Yours might say something similar to that. And um, the ESV and the NIV try to, to fight what, what this, this paragraph break does by starting verse 34 with the word, with the word then instead of just the. Um, but let, 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 I just want to read verses 33 to 34 so, so that you can actually get this without the paragraph break in it. It says, next, Moses set up a surrounding courtyard for the tabernacle and the altar and hung a screen for the gate of the courtyard. So Moses finished the work. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In the Hebrew, it's immediate. It's just happening right away. It's sequential. It's all set up and consequentially, God comes down right away. Moses set it all up in one day and then God came down right away. He was eager to come down to earth. He's eager to be here. That, that, that's the first thing that we see, that God is eager to come to earth. You can see God, he's kind of sitting on the edge of his seat, just watching the Israelites pull together all these different things for the tabernacle, getting the curtains and the, the, curtains and the pillars ready, the, the ark, the lampstand, the altar, the, the washing basin, pulling all these things together, getting the priests uh, washed right, getting them dressed right, getting the, the, the high priest dressed right with his special clothes and, and turban. And, and then, then once the, the ark is brought in and, and the curtains are put up, boom, God falls on it. He just comes right into it. He's eager to be there. Whoosh. He comes down in the cloud, and his glory fills the temple. He's eager to be on earth again. No other religion will ascribe that to God, to, to, to their God. No other religion will ascribe that value to earth. That God is eager to set up shop here. He wants to be here. And often, don't we have the opposite notion? Don't we think that God is disinterested in earth, that, that he's given up on it? Sometimes at our worst, we probably even think that he's given up on us. Don't, I mean, have you ever thought that he's just off somewhere in some other realm, just working through this list of prayers he's getting? 
No, this shows that he's eager to be here with us, on earth, with us. He's watching and waiting on the edge of his seat for opportunities to come down and move in with us. He's watching and waiting for the chance to be among his people. He, he, he treasures them and he values them, as sinful as they might be, to the point where he's just on the edge of the seat waiting to move in. He's eager. Did you know that God is eager to inhabit your life? That he wants to be with you and in you and among you in your life? That he's just looking for opportunities to jump into it? I must admit, often it doesn't feel that way, right? But here is a God who's eager to come into the lives of his people. He's eager for it. Just looking for opportunities. So that's the first thing. God's so eager to jump down here on earth. Um, the, the second thing that comes up uh, here that we don't expect is that Moses can't go into the tabernacle. That's a bit strange. Is it, I mean, that should catch us a little off guard. It's like, it, it actually says Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting, t- the tabernacle. The, those two terms become synonymous moving forward in Scripture now. There was a tent of meeting that we talked about um, in, in earlier chapters. Now those two are, are synonymous. But, but Moses can't go in, just like he used to go into the tent of meeting. And that's weird. Because Moses, he was up on Mount Sinai. He was in the cloud. He had a crazy close encounter with the glory of God that he asked for, and now he can't get in. Now he's locked out. What's going on here? Why is he locked out? Well, if you go back through the book of Exodus, what, what, what you'll see is something very interesting when it comes to the presence of God and Moses. And it goes like this. We could have, probably could have done a whole other sermon on this. We probably could have done 10 more sermons on Exodus, but... We, we, we just kept moving. Okay. But it goes like this. Moses is always invited into the presence of God. In fact, when they get to Sinai, Moses is waiting on the bottom of the mountain for like six days before he gets invited to go back up. He's just camping by himself, waiting to get invited up to the cloud, to the glory of God. <clears throat> and now there's no invite to Moses. He can't go in. Well, th- this reality forces us to remember that even in light of God's love, and that he's eager to be with his people, sin is real. Even though the Israelites were willing to go in to create a covenant, even though they, they, they worked so hard to create this tabernacle and set it up just like God has said, sin is real. We're still sinful, and sin keeps us from encountering God's presence. This might make you think, well, man, like Moses seems to be pretty great. If he can't get in, like how am I supposed to get in? Like, But that's why we have the book of Leviticus, actually. The invitation comes. It's just in the next verses. You have this piece of paper like I do, probably in your Bible. But it's just in the next verses here. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them. When any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd of the flock. So you only have to go to the next verse where Moses actually gets that invitation. And actually the whole book of Leviticus and the first you know, nine chapters of Numbers, Israel's going to stay here um, as God speaks to Moses from the tabernacle and receive the book of Leviticus in the first couple chapters of, of Numbers for, for the next seven weeks or so before in Numbers 10, um, 9 it tells us they're going to move on. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to be working through the book of, of Levit- no, we're not going to do that. Sorry. Sorry. We're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> no, we're, we're going to do baptism next week, and then we're going to transition to our summer sermon series. We usually spend time in the Psalms in summer, and so we're going to do that this summer. Um, 
But it's this atonement that is prescribed in Leviticus and Numbers, these books that are super boring and very strange to us, that actually unlocked the tabernacle for the Israelites. Unlocks it for the Jewish people. They are permitted to draw close, and, and the high priest will get to go all the way into the Holy of Holies because of this process that God outlines in the book of Leviticus. So that's actually the good news, that, that as we trust the means of atonement, sinners get to dwell with God on earth. That's what it's all about. God is dwelling with sinners on earth. Now, now they're not just dwelling next to God. They're not just hanging out with God. Uh, the third thing we see here is, is that they're actually going somewhere with God. They're actually going to go somewhere with, with him. This cloud becomes their guide in life. It, it's, it's, his presence comes, it, it, it hangs out next to them, and then it says, we're going somewhere else. Let's go. So the, what the cloud does periodically is it goes up uh, from the, the tabernacle. God's glory goes up in the cloud, and then it leaves. Israelites like, oh, shoot, we got to go. They pack that tabernacle up. You know, thankfully, I think they can break it down in a day or two, and then they, can, they follow the cloud. They, they carry it. There's all these certain, like, uh, tribes are the ones that are responsible for carrying all of these things, and, and, and the Levites, they go, they follow, they see where the cloud stops, they build it underneath the cloud again, and then whoosh, God's glory comes back down into it. And it is going to happen like that for the next few decades. For the next few decades, God is going to be their faithful guide through the wilderness. And so as we pull all of these things together, what, what, what all three of these things mean is that even though God's people are still sinful, He's merciful to, to, to dwell next to them and eager to guide them on earth through their entire life, decades. That, that's what Exodus tells us. God is eager to dwell with sinners and guide them throughout their entire life. You don't have to skip forward a thousand pages and 1,300 years in history to get that from Jesus. It's right here. God loves sinners and wants to guide them and protect them throughout their entire lives. Now, Let's look at Jesus, though, because what he does is he makes that very real and very applicable for us. We're still in the abstract, aren't we? But Jesus, God coming down in the flesh, takes everything that was abstract in the Old Testament and gives it a very real, tangible example. It's called Jesus fulfilling Scripture. So how does he fulfill this? How did he do, how did he do that for us? Well, um, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is great because it takes a theological bend on, on, on Jesus' coming, where the other three Gospels are more of a historical. So they're all about the events. John's trying to tell you these are the theological realities that were happening behind the events. And this is how he starts his Gospel off. It goes like this. Um, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, who whenever we read, I read this with, I read about John in the Gospels with my girls, I say, who is John? The cousin of Christ. Okay, the cousin of Christ. Uh, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world, this is Jesus, the, the word again, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not know him, did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. 
But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, nor the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what's John saying? What's this theological thing he's pointing at in the, in, in the incarnation, that is, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity coming to earth, saying heaven came down. In him was light, and that light was the life of men. Heaven came down, and there was glory, and we saw the glory that heaven came down with. The word became flesh and dwelt dwelt. He actually has the tabernacle in mind. This word dwelt comes from a Greek word that, that is actually used to translate the, um, the word tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's the same Greek word that was used to translate that from the Hebrew. John takes this Greek noun, tabernacle, he turns it into a verb. The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us. Why did he do that? Well, he's pointing back to this event in Exodus chapter 40. He's saying that God was eagerly awaiting all of the pieces of salvation history to come together so he could drop his glory down on earth. He wasn't lackadaisically sitting around on the couch and being like, well, I guess we should send Jesus now. No, he was eagerly waiting it and and orchestrating it and waiting for all the details to come together so Jesus could come down. He had the high priest conceive the one who would prepare the way, John the Baptist. He had this young, humble, engaged couple, Mary and Joseph, exactly where he wanted them. He had the Roman census that was lined up to bring them into Jerusalem. He had the shepherds and the wise men. He had had Zechariah and Anna waiting at the temple for when Jesus was born so that they could announce the birth of the Messiah. Everything was ready. All these details aligned on earth, and when they all did, God eagerly pounced on it. And Jesus showed up. John says we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. What is he saying? This is key. He's saying that that Jesus' disciples and all the people who came to trust Jesus and and believe in him were themselves the tabernacle. Okay, so so in in the Old Testament, what we have is is the curtains and the pillars and the furniture. Those comprise the tabernacle. John is saying he he tabernacled among us. We're actually the furniture of the tabernacle. That was really, really cool. He came down, and for all of them, they functioned as the tabernacle for God on earth. And they saw all the functions of the tabernacle happen. Jesus spoke to them. He guided them. He directed them. He protected them. healed them. And finally, he fulfilled the third central role of the tabernacle that we read about in Leviticus. He became that atoning sacrifice for them. God dwelled among sinners. So here's the tabernacle, if you want to understand it, from from all scripture, Old Testament, tabernacle, housed the Father, okay? This kind of, this tabernacle that, that is in Exodus 40, it housed the Father. The disciples are the tabernacle of the Son, and then you and I today, we are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. That's how the tabernacle works throughout Scripture because Jesus left. His glory, it left. And and he hinted throughout his ministry that he was going to leave, but finally it hits the disciples at the Last Supper. Finally it hits them. The the, the night he was betrayed, and and the disciples are just reeling with this notion of like, oh no, Jesus isn't going to be here anymore. We're going to be an empty tabernacle. 
just like the Israelites were scared to go alone in the wilderness. What are we going to do? And so Jesus tells them the next step of the tabernacle in John 14. John 14. Jesus says, their anxiety has spiked. What are we going to do? Jesus says, don't worry. I'll ask the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. That's the verse, sorry. I will not leave you. Oh, oh and, and then moving on to, to John 16, he gives this further uh, little expounding of what this spirit is going to be like. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. So here we have God. Jesus says, no, like, you're going to be the tabernacle. Uh, the Spirit is going to dwell with you. He is going to communicate with you. And then in Acts 1, verse 8, he's going to guide you and direct you in this life. He says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria to all the ends of the earth. And, and these are incredible promises when we read here all of the attention that has been put into bringing God to earth, he wants to come here. Jesus says he still wants to come here and he's gonna come into you in order to come to earth. And unbelievably, it's such an, an amazing truth and an amazing reality that Jesus shares with us and, and what, what is sure to give us amazing experiences in life, but it's one that we can forget about is what the New Testament also tells us. This is from 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you yourselves know, this is Paul talking to a, a very, very sinful church, probably the, the most sinful church that we have on record in the New Testament. Paul's like, oh, they've forgotten something. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? The, the temple in, in, in Hebrew history came to replace the tabernacle, and you have an identical cloud falling on it in glory, filling the temple during the reign of Solomon. But we can even forget about this. It's a reality that, that can go unnoticed in our lives. You know, so, what's, so what, what, what we see is God progress from being eager to inhabit the tabernacle in the desert to eager to inhabit his disciples in the New Testament to eager to inhabit all who have faith in him. He's, he's watching for the opportunity. He's just waiting on the edge of his seat to show up in our lives. And doesn't it seem easier here in Exodus chapter 40? Like, they just had to, like, watch a cloud. Like, the cloud left, and then it went. They're like, oh, great. Let's just go there then. Like, doesn't that seem so much better? Doesn't that seem so much easier and, and, and better? It's, but it falls short because there are two things that the, the, the Spirit does and works in the hearts of us as we lean into Him and experience Him. Deeper communion and deeper power. Um, do you know what the Israelites, that no Israelite ever experienced? The Holy Spirit gripped their heart in an embrace of love, warmth, and affection. and never got to experience that. Have you felt that? Have you felt that embrace in your Christian life? There's nothing better than that. It's, it's, it's amazing. They never felt that. There's still this separation in this Exodus 40 tabernacle. There's still even separation between Jesus and his disciples when he was here 2,000 years to go, or for 2,000 years ago, you know? Spirit dwells next to sinners here. Our Father dwells next to sinners. Jesus dwells among them. Spirit dwells in us, though. 
It's so much fuller in, in how we commune with God throughout our days. And, and, and as we slow down and quiet our minds and our hearts, he speaks to us and he nudges us throughout our days. He says, God loves you. He's your father. You are his child. He delights in you. He encourages you on. He points to truth in your life that you may have forgotten in order to help you move forward. He points to sin that is in your life in order uh, that you might commune with him deeper. The Hebrews only had their conscience. They only had the law. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the incredible gift of applying the law to every situation we find ourselves in in life. We have God there with us whispering to us throughout our day. Think of this person. Pray for this person. Reach out and encourage this person. Send them a note. It's one of the most transformational things when, when in, in college, when I was really debating whether Christianity could be true or not, there was someone uh, from, from this ministry that I, that, that I had gone to that came up alongside me and, and put their arm around me and said, you can do it. Just keep going. God loves you and he cares about you. And in spite of all your doubts, he's still there for you no matter what. Your doubts don't change who he is. I don't know where I'd be without that encouragement, without someone listening to the Holy Spirit in their life. I mean, that's a weird thing to do to somebody else. It meant the world to me. The world to me. He's always whispering alongside us. He says, don't... Do this, do that, encourage that person. Don't be alone, you might fall into sin. Go out, organize a a social get-together with your friends. Serve in this way. These are just all things that the Bible and the New Testament instructs Christians to do, but the Holy Spirit will make it real and will know when and where and how to do them. He's constantly nudging us throughout our ordinary and our mundane days. And if we trust him, the, the, the ordinary and the mundane, they become extraordinary even if it just means throwing your arm around somebody and encouraging them. So that's deeper communion, now deeper power. If you read through the gospel accounts, like you slow down and you read through them, several very uncomfortable realities surface, uh, the primary of which for our eyes and our ears um, is the existence of a spiritual realm of, of Satan and demons. If you read through the Gospels, it's, it's, it's Jesus was tempted by Satan, rebukes Satan, Jesus rebukes demon, Jesus casts out demon, Jesus casts out demon, Jesus casts out demon, Jesus casts out a legion of demons. That's hard for us in, in the West to wrestle with, that, that we, might see, we, we might not see those on the surface. But there's a phenomenon that happens Every now and then that goes like this. Jesus walks into a town, there's lots of spiritual stuff going on, and it says he can't heal, he can't ha- cast out demon, demons, he can't perform miracles. It's like, wait a sec, I thought, I thought this was God. What's going on here? I thought he could do whatever he wanted to do. Why is he seemingly limited here? Well, a, a thorough reading of the gospel shows us that, that Jesus' miraculous power, casting out demons, uh, miracles, healing, were all in partner with the Holy Spirit. They're all in partner with the participation of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't doing these miracles based on his power as, as, as uh, the Son of God, is what we find. He wasn't. He was actually doing these things through the Holy Spirit. Um, a, a great example to look at is, is when you see Peter walking with Jesus on the water. Jesus walk on the water. Peter says, can I do that? Jesus is like, absolutely. And Peter does it for a bit. So clearly that Jesus was walking on the water, not in the power based on him, but based on something else. And Peter was walking on that same power, a 
of the Holy Spirit until he doubts. And when there's doubt and unbelief, the Spirit takes a step back, and Peter sinks. And thankfully, Jesus is, um, he doesn't just save people from sin. He's a great lifeguard, so he fishes Peter out, you know. But, but that's why Jesus goes into towns, and he can't operate in full power, because it says because of their unbelief. The Spirit doesn't show up into those places. And so as we learn to trust the Holy Spirit, we can even see deeper power. We can even see miracles happen in our lives. We'll find the power to slay sin in our lives. He'll give us the words to share truth with people who need it and perhaps even see miracles of healing in our own lives. Now, all these are miraculous works of the Spirit, but there's the prerequisite of faith. That's why James tells us, in a harsh word, but they must ask in faith, not doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave on the sea, blown and tossed to and fro by the wind. It's it's a rough word, James. And when deeper communion and deeper power, they come together, when we embrace the ordinary is what happens, but we expect the supernatural, heaven comes to earth. Heaven comes to earth. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. That's what he called it. Heaven coming to earth. It's the kingdom of God. Now, what attitudes do we lean into in order to participate with this kingdom of God? Um, the first is integrity. Integrity. Now, I'm not using the word in the sense of being righteous, okay? When I say integrity, I'm leaning on a secondary use of the word that, that goes like this. It goes, uh, being undivided. So, for example, your chair has the integrity to hold you up right now because it doesn't have a crack in it, so you won't fall. You know? so, so it's because your chair hasn't been used in a way it wasn't supposed to be used, so it's still good for sitting, okay? Uh, this version of integrity means that, that, that you're the same person on Monday as you are on Sunday. It means that you're the same person at home as you are at work, as you are at happy hour, as you are at church. Integrity is, is a, a wholeness of where all parts of your life are not separated from other parts of your life. There's a wholeness to lean into and remain faithful to the realities that you have accepted to be true in this world. Heaven coming to earth? Let's remain faithful to that in all areas of life. And the Holy Spirit is here to help us with that. And as we partner with him to do that, what we're going to see is him show up and make the ordinary extraordinary. We're going to see, the heaven come, see heaven come to earth in big ways in our lives. Now, we're going to mess up, obviously. We're starting the service at 10 now, so uh, we've probably all messed up even before church today, okay? Uh, we're going to mess up. But Christian integrity forces confession and repentance, When that happens, which it regrounds us, it re-energizes us, it revitalizes us to continue moving on, seeking out integrity, even though we'll fall short of perfect integrity. The second um, is courage. It's just two, integrity and courage. Courage. Um, This is actually the next step in Israel's history too, which is great. They're about to get waylaid for 40 years in the wilderness because of their rebellion to God, and they're going to have to hold off entering the promised land. But, but Christians today, we don't have that wilderness period of the, of the 40 years of being delayed. We actually enter into the promised land right away. We enter into the rest of Christ and his beautiful blessings right away. And, and when they do go to enter into the promised land, Moses passes on a phrase to Joshua that Joshua, it's going to be a refrain that they use over and over and over again to encourage the people of God to go take hold of all the promises that, are, that, that God has for them. He says, be strong and courageous. 
The cloud of God in his full glory, it dwells inside of you. And, and while the tabernacle has changed, the mission is the same, to make him known to all people. Now, you don't have to convince them that he's real. That's God's job. But just to make him known to all people, and that takes courage. It takes strength. It takes boldness. And it takes community to build you back up again and send you back out courageous. Because you know what? It doesn't always go well, especially in a city like Seattle. And that's why we're here together, to build one another up, to send one another out, to accomplish the purpose of the tabernacle, which is to make God known in a public way throughout the world. To be sent back out in Christ. And so Joshua says this to close his work Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in, in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourself today, which will you worship? The gods of your fathers that they worship beyond the, the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living? As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. And we have more reason than ever to come to the same conclusion that Joshua did as we get to see and experience the Spirit in our midst. Perhaps for you, this, is, this decision is coming to you today. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship the, the gods of Seattle and the way of life here in Seattle? Or might you reconsider and say, I'm going to try, I'm going to choose to follow the Lord. I guarantee you that it's going to be exhilarating. It's going to be all about making the ordinary extraordinary. Heaven's going to come to earth in your midst you will experience setbacks, but through confession, repentance, and the, and the power of the community, we will continue on into the future. But so if that's you, baptism is for you next week as well. So just remember that. But So thank you for being here today, guys. Would you pray for me as we lean into being the tabernacles of God that go out into the city to make them known?